Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Michael Shannon. He is the owner of Lily's Pharmacy in Johns Creek, Georgia, and also the CEO of FarmWorks. He is not a pharmacist, but does manage the day-to-day operations of his pharmacy down there with his wife, Jennifer, who's also a pharmacist. How long have you been a pharmacy owner there? Uh, so we've been in pharmacy at Lily, in, in business at Lily's Pharmacy for about six years now, going on seven. Okay, so you kind of started more recently, but have had good success. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, jumped in after a, a bad experience ourselves at a at a drugstore and decided that it was time for us to do our own thing, unbeknownst to the challenges in the industry at the time. But <laughs> we quickly learned. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, though, you know, you, when you started, that was right when the PBMs started playing a lot of their games and a lot of independents started shutting the doors. So the fact that you've been able to stay open has been awesome. And that's good to hear for people who have heard a lot of the, the scare stories with some of these independents to hear that you guys are, are kicking it and doing great down there with despite all the hurdles. What are your, some of your other past roles in and around pharmacy and current roles as well? So literally none. <laughs> uh, so I'm a, just a little background. I, I'm a computer engineer undergrad with an MBA um, from Georgia. So uh, go dogs, uh, go Virginia tech. I'm originally a Virginia tech Hokie as with my wife. So, um, but so basically I, I had, like I said, a bad chain drugstore for daughter, Lily. Um, my wife, Jen had to have an emergency procedure to, to have her. And we had a terrible experience bringing her home from the hospital at one of the local, uh, chain stores. And that was just kind of the spark that, uh, began, what is now Lily's Pharmacy. And, um, you know, the current roles, we kind of split things up. My wife, obviously, the pharmacist handles everything clinical, handles all the patient engagement stuff. And, he, you know, obviously, she's the one checking the prescriptions, doing uh, doing blister packages, things like that. But I handle all the day-to-day operations, inventory management, HR, marketing outreach, things like that. So we kind of have uh, a good team between the two of us to manage all aspects of running our own pharmacy. That's awesome. Yeah. I know as a pharmacist, that's all the stuff that we aren't trained to do. And generally speaking, even though I'm probably a little more outgoing for most pharmacists, don't always like to do those things. So that's awesome. You take the burden off for her. And- yeah. And she, she, she jokes with me all the time because she's like, I, she took one business class in pharmacy school. So she's like, there's no way I would have been <laughs> able to do all this stuff without having the, the MBA on the side. So I definitely, we, we work very well as a team when she's not throwing stuff at me in the pharmacy. So <laughs> Yeah, you guys are married, so that, that does make it for a little bit of a fun environment sometimes, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, so hey, one thing I think that I I guess I really like about your story too is you said you had an issue with your daughter at a other retail pharmacy. I, I don't know which one, but I like the fact that you guys had an issue and thought to yourselves, hey, we can do this better with my degree and your pharmacy degree. That's an awesome story. I think that a lot of people in pharmacy need to hear that, hey, if you, you don't have to settle for the status quo, you can go out and change the game with that. I'm I'm really glad you guys do that. That's awesome. Yeah, and her her big thing at the time, she was a pharmacist down at uh, Grady Hospital in Atlanta here, which is a trauma level one trauma center for Atlanta, and she was managing the ambulatory care outpatient setting, really. So people would come to her to, you know, see her as their primary care basically, and they she would adjust insulin doses, she'd adjust cholesterol meds, everything, and. Her whole thing was, we need to bring this kind of practice. It's not a, it, we're not opening a store. We need to bring this kind of healthcare practice to the community. 
And that's kind of how we approached it. And she's been phenomenal in the, the kinds of things that she's done in our pharmacy to, to change the game, you know, try to try to enhance the services that are offered as opposed to just dispensing. That's the way you should look at it. You should want to change the healthcare part of it. Making money is a benefit and a perk of that, but you really yeah. need to deliver healthcare as your first primary mission, no matter what. So that's, right. that's awesome. So the reason I asked you to be on the podcast today was because of something you shared on LinkedIn, which I thought really struck home with some of the gamesmanship of the current healthcare system with the PBMs and with pharmacy retail specifically in general. You described that PBMs would prefer a brand name insulin over a recently released generic one, even though there's a significant cost savings with the generic over the brand. Can you explain why this is a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So for those that don't know, this is called this is what they call their DAW nine programs. So most of you are from as pharmacists are familiar with DAW one to whatever you know, doctor requesting brand, uh, patient requesting brand. But DAW nine is actually plan is requesting brand. So you might have the the list price of a in, of an insulin or any you know Colchris is another one. You get the Concertas and the Adderalls or another or another ones, but they basically will mandate. If you want to fill this prescription through the insurance policy that the patient has, you have to use brand. They call it DAW9. I mean, there, there's multiple problems with that, obviously, which I, I think we'll probably get into. But, you know, I think what they're trying to do, they're playing the game of the rebate, right? They're getting a mm -hmm. bigger rebate from the brand manufacturer on the back end. So naturally, they're going to prefer that brand on their formulary. So if you try to fill the generic, they just give you a flat out stop and say, you can't, cannot fill this generic through the insurance. You have to use the brand. They say it's for cost savings, but in example after example, especially with the folks with the high deductible health plans, it's not helping them at all. It's actually hurting them. Can you elaborate on how you've seen it actually hurt patients? And even though they're getting a rebate, are they passing the savings on? Or what are, what are you seeing since you have more of the, in, the, <laughs> in the details numbers being an independent? They claim, right, that the rebates help to lower the premium costs and lower the costs to the health plan, but the patients certainly don't see that. Find somebody whose premium has gone down year over year. I challenge you to do that because I don't think that actually <laughs> happens. It's never happened to us. That's what they claim is that they go to lowering premiums and, and keeping the overall cost of the plan low, but I don't think that happens. And then what ends up happening at the pharmacy counter is we fill it for, say you fill it with the DAW9 product. You, you go ahead and fill it with the brand insulin or the brand Concerta. Well, the pharmacy makes a measly you know 2% margin. But I think more importantly, the patient ends up being penalized, especially if they're in a high deductible health plan, because what happens is the full cost of that, you know, say they have a $5,000 deductible, the full $550 copay is passed on to them as part of meeting their deductible. And it won't even give them the option of using the generic, which might cost them $50 if adjudicated properly. So they're feeling the brunt of this rebate game. And they have no idea that a rebate is even happening. And so just to be clear, so basically they're getting charged in your case, what you said here, the $550 copay, the full amount, and then the plan is getting like the kickback later and not passing it directly on, which is what you're, you're saying. Correct. Like yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Stark laws and everything that's passed as far as, you know, stopping doctors from getting kickbacks for prescribing certain drugs or referring to certain practices, how is, I don't see how this is any different. Yeah. Right. I, I don't, I don't see how. A health plan is allowed to mandate a drug simply for financial gain. There's no clinical evidence to suggest that the brand is any better than the generic. Yeah. Uh, my wife, in fact, testified in a hearing here in Georgia about 
uh, Colchris example, right? Because Colchris is another one. They mandate Colchris over uh, Colchicine. And the representative on the phone actually, she called. It was a Saturday. She had to call to get a override because this guy needed this drug and nobody in the area had the Colchris. Mm -hmm. She had to call the PBM help desk to get an override in order to dispense the generic Colchicine. The first reaction from the PBM representative was, well, I guess he's going to have to go back to the hospital because he can't get an override on that. I've seen that too. And the, and the crazy thing about that is, unfortunately, with what we deal with in pharmacy, everyone thinks, oh, you're dealing with my insurance. It saves them money if I don't go to the hospital. Yeah, it saves your insurance right. money. But the PBM doesn't care because right. they're not in that. They don't care if they save money. For them, it's all about their bottom line, not the insurances. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar situation with, it was a heart med, it was a certain form of, I believe it was diltiazem, if I remember correctly, where, and I forget the strength, I think it was 120, it might have been higher. It's a, a woman who was about my age, younger 30s, and she had a heart condition. She needed diltiazem that didn't have, a, I think it was a red dye in it. She was allergic to red dye. We happened to have one of the brands. Well, that brand wasn't covered by the insurance. Eventually, I talked to them, they put the override in. She had to pay a higher copay to go for it with the, mm -hmm. where I work versus the other pharmacy. Again, another game they play. But it ended up coming back that it was a refill too soon. Well, the one the other pharmacy gave her had the red dye in it. She couldn't take it. When I talked to the PBM, they were the exact thing they told me was, well, we can't cover it. I have no way to override that. It was the same situation. It was a Saturday. You have to call the plan back when they're on a Monday. And she literally left the ER with heart palpitations from not taking her medication. It was, her only option would be to go back there and possibly get admitted so she can get the right type of medication. Over This was even a simple dye. But similar right. situation to what you're talking about, the PBMs don't care because they're not incentivized the way the insurance is for the person's overall health. They're just incentivized for the prescription drug benefit. Right. Oh, I know. It's, it's crazy. And you know what's funny? To kind of round out that story, right? So my wife spent, she must have spent 45 minutes on a Saturday. Now our store is only open four hours on a Saturday. So that was a good quarter of her day spent on the phone with this PBM trying to get the Colchicine approved. She got the Colchicine approved finally after begging some upper management person and his copay was higher, even though the payment was lower. <laughs> and about two weeks later, he got a letter from the plan saying this maintenance medication will be more cost effective if you switch it to our pharmacy. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's bewildering. I, I'm just, it, it's infuriating is what it is. You, you get so frustrated with this stuff. So the other thing that you mentioned too, was some of the, with the gamesmanship of the PBMs and the rebates and requiring brand names that it makes inventory very difficult for pharmacies and how, with the brand names, there's not very much markup, if any at all, if we're even making money on them. Yeah. Can, I was going to say, if you're not negative on it. Yeah. If you're, if you're not upside down yeah. on it. Can you yep. explain why this makes everything so difficult to manage, not just for an independent, but just a pharmacy in general? Yeah. I mean, so inventory is just a challenge in general. I mean, that's one of the things that as a as an owner, you have to be so adept at managing your inventory. And I'm proud to say we're at, at Lily's Pharmacy, we're at about 16 inventory turns a year. But wow. when you're but when you're trying to manage having both and these are they're not cheap generics we're talking about either. No. Right. I mean, even the even the generic insulin is still a three hundred dollar box of insulin. Right. So when you're having to manage to have both of those on the shelf at all times for your patients, it's nearly impossible. So what ends up happening is the patients have less access. They don't have immediate access to the meds that they need. Right. So aside from the affordability problem, I can't afford as a pharmacy owner to keep two $500 bottles of the same thing on my shelf. Right. So mm -hmm. I gotta, I gotta figure out which one gets more use. 
And if the brand gets less use, well, that's not going to be on my shelf immediately for use. I'm going to have to order it for the next day or the next weekend. And that impacts patient access to medication. So, yeah, because you'd have to either partial fill it for, you know, you don't have, say, 90 tablets in stock or even 30. You might have to give them five or an insulin, give them one pen instead of a whole box of five. And then that means multiple trips to the pharmacy. Obviously, people taking medications can be elderly. They can have travel or problems getting back and forth. So, yeah, that can definitely make a huge issue. So, yeah, that's a. That's a good point there. Since you guys are able to turn over your inventory 16 times, that's amazing. That's like what, like a 20 day supply on hand. Yeah, we've we've really <laughs> we've really focused in on that a lot over the past few years because that can be your Achilles heel. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. It, it can sink you easily. What have you guys done to be so nimble? Is there anything revolutionary, or is it really just dialing into your specific store needs? Uh, you know, I'll say that probably. A, the most important thing is having active eyes on everything. So I'm in there every day. My, my wife, you know, she's, Jen is the pharmacist. She's in there three days a week as the active pharmacist in charge. But I, as the business manager, am in there every day. So I have active eyes on almost every claim. And the staff knows that there's something funky, like they need to talk to me about it. So that's number one, I think, just being there. To, and I, I just kind of glance at the shelves every day and say, why do we have six <laughs> bottles of, you know, levetiracetam or what? you know, like, what's going on here? So you can identify those things pretty easily. But then we've also used a lot. We have we partnered with Data Rhythm. We started buying the Data Rhythm solution. Um, and that has a monthly fee to it, but they really help to set order points to help make sure that you're keeping the right amount of inventory on hand and they dynamically adjust it for you based on your usage patterns. Yeah, so that's, that's that helps awesome. a lot. And then we deployed the, we have two icons in our pharmacy as well. So those things are just absolutely amazing. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, no, inventory is definitely always a huge issue. And I, I know you love those days when, you order something for somebody that's a, a brand name drug or something expensive like we're talking about here. And then next thing you know, somebody was like, well, I just ordered three or four months of it because they're going to come back. And you're like, oh, that's going to kill our bottom line. Yeah, no, please don't. Please don't do that. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> we're, we're already not making money on it or losing money on it. Now we're now we right. did that. Oh. Now now we have $1,500 sitting on our shelves for three months. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. And like you said, with the current PBM reimbursement things, it makes it a... Uh, it makes it tough to make money in general, but then when you do that or someone does that with a good faith initiative, it can really, really right. put a damper on you there, uh, kind of get in the weeds, some of the pharmacy things here. But as an independent pharmacy owner, you've had obviously had firsthand experience with some of the tactics PBM use to enhance their bottom line to make sure they're more profitable. What are some of these that you have seen that are kind of like the major ones that you think need to be fixed? <laughs> so there's three or four off the top of my head that I know, you know, are, are currently things that are being worked on at various levels of government and in business, right? But you got kind of the retroactive fees, whether it's DIR fees or Gerber fees, these generic effective rate, brand effective rate contracts that get, make it impossible to predict what your final payment is going to be, right? So can you, you explain those kind of things. what those are a little bit just so in case people yeah, get lost so acronyms? Ger- <laughs> Gerber, generic effective rate, brand effective rate is uh, similar to in the Medicare space, the DIR fees, the direct and indirect remuneration fees. And basically it's a way for commercial plans or the the PBMs in the commercial plan space to structure plans that enable them to reimburse you based on an average uh, reimbursement rate. So they could say at the point of sale, it's just like kind of a Medicare direct and indirect remuneration fee, right? So they can say at the point of sale or at the pharmacy counter, here's what your reimbursement's going to be. And then, you know, a year later, after they've done their averaging across your PSAO contracting group, oh, well, 
we over reimburse you for all of these claims. So we're going to take money back. Right. So it's, it's a DIR fee, but in the commercial space, basically. So it just makes it really hard, really hard as a business guy <laughs> to run a, run a business where you don't know what your final payment is going to be yeah, or and, anything that goes out the door. And the one thing you point out is they, they only do that if they're taking money away from you based on the average, correct? They're never paying you more and being like, oh, sorry, we under reimbursed you. I, to everyone else. I, <laughs> I have yet to have the experience where I've <laughs> said, where they said, oh, we've under reimbursed you. Let us give you some more money. I haven't had that. I, I would love for somebody to come forward and tell me they have because I'll look at joining that contracting group. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'll tell you, know, I, I, we're, we are firm believers in kind of the elevate strategy. I'm not trying to pitch Amerisource Bergen or elevate or any of that, but elevate strategy. If you kind of look at what they're doing as far as contracting, they were kind of the first PSAO to say, no, we are not going to accept all of these, you know, preferred network arrangements. And no, we're not going to accept every Gerber contract that's thrown our way. We firmly believe in the power of the pharmacist and the pharmacist, the patient picks their pharmacist and then their plan, not the other way around. Kudos to Elevate for that, and they're kind of leading the industry there in uh, in that kind of contract outlook. I did not know that. That's that's good to hear, actually, because yeah. that lets them pick where they want to get their health care, and I'm all about that. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. So you mentioned DAR and Gerber fees. What are some of the other ones? So other ones, steering or incentivizing to wholly owned pharmacies, right? So a lot of the PBMs own, as you know, their own pharmacies, right? And they either put hard stops on claims and say, oh, this patient must go to this particular pharmacy, or they'll say, you know, this patient must take these maintenance medications to this one. It's okay if they fill all their sick meds and their ADHD meds with you, but they can't fill their blood pressure medications or anything, which leads to discontinuity of care and drugs being filled at three different pharmacies, mail order, chain, you know, independent, what specialty, whatever, right? So. Yeah. It's just terrible. I mean, my wife, her, her skin crawls when she gets those kind of steering rejects, which is why we were so adamant about that law we passed here in Georgia last year for the anti-steering legislation. So they're not allowed to do that in Georgia anymore. Oh, they still man. do. Yeah. They still do. Why, why wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's a method for us to report it, and the Board of Pharmacy actually has oversight on it. So it is being enforced, which is nice. Well, that's, that's good. That's something we definitely need up here. I know with, yeah, like you said, with patient steering, you can have the polypharmacy issue, drug interactions missed, and then you're talking serious health problems. And right. the the one thing I think is kind of funny too with this is that they'll say that they're doing this to save cost. But when they huh, do yeah. that, I mean, there's probably many times, especially independent, your cost is cheaper than either what the patient's copay was at that, say, mail order or the, or the other place. Yep. Yeah, And th that's like a obvious way that you would be cheaper. But in a lot of times, even the back way, because you might be charging the insurance company, say, well, I'm just gonna throw a number, say $50 for a prescription, but the chain down the road is charging them 100. And because they're incentivized to bill the insurance more so they can make more money, they'll bill them the 100, where with you, they couldn't bill over 50. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. I mean, if you if you saw the recent report out of Florida, that the Florida Pharmacy Association oh, yeah, that's... and ACPI did, I mean, it's yeah. just, it's a, it's, terrible what they're doing where they're paying i mean i think there was one example in that report with um was it aripiprazole maybe generic abilify where they were paying the wholly owned pharmacy the pharmacy that they owned they were paying it eight dollars in some sense for the same prescription that they were paying an independent pharmacy 54 cents for yeah um, i'm sure we'll get into that some more but i think it, it's just ripe for abuse 
and overutilization and to you know i mean there's no incentive there for them to save costs when the pbm is filling the prescriptions at a pharmacy that they own yeah i went to a ohio pharmacist association meeting and i know antonio chacha has been huge on this with eric packman mm-hmm. with uh, either 46 brooklyn or three excess advisors shout out to them if you don't follow them follow them they do some amazing yeah. analysis of this stuff yeah and yeah, Abilify is a major one because the AWP or average wholesale price on it is through the roof, but the cost is actually pretty low. It's one of the few ones that we actually make a good buck on at most pharmacies. And Arkansas was one where they pointed that out was a huge discrepancy with what one of the PBMs was paying their own wholly owned pharmacies versus what they were paying others. And when they went to the legislators, they said, oh, well, here's the average of it. Well, you had to break it down by pharmacy to see the differences, which is exactly what you're saying there with the the Gerber fees, but it's done a different way, essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, but our biggest thing, right. Not even so, yeah, there's a cost to the health system for when the costs are high, there's a cost to the health plan. And I think the employers are starting to wake up to see, you know, what's going on here. But the most important thing is the discontinuity of care with the patient. I mean, it is so dangerous for them to get their antibiotics and ADHD meds or whatever else at, uh, at one pharmacy, be forced to get their their maintenance medications or incentivized to get their maintenance medications through a mail order or a, a wholly owned chain, and you know, and then you have the whole separate entity of specialty pharmacy and where you know, oh yeah, being required to get specialty meds through a specialty pharmacy like that's so dangerous. We have patients that will get meds at three different pharmacies because they're mandated and they're scared. You know, it's terrible. Yeah, you've that's all, all in the name of profits. It's another reason why we should have a little more transparency in what people are taking and besides just controlled substances with the prescription drug monitoring programs, but right. but yeah, and also who defines what specialty is. I've seen insulin's been forced to go that way and it's definitely not a specialty drug. Right. It's only a matter of time before everything is classified as specialty because of the financial implications of it. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. So DIRVs, patient steering. Uh, you said you might have one or two other ones you want to see change. Can you? Yeah, I mean, mainly that. So we've already kind of touched on this, but the the rebates, you know, how the rebates are handled, the formulary games that they play, right? How how they can pick one brand over uh, over another, and, and they choose winners and losers of drug manufacturers based on profitability only and not effectiveness of the drug. And then kind of along with that, the spread pricing games that they play, right? So you alluded to it already, right? The pharmacy bills AWP, just because that's the stand, that's kind of an industry standard, which needs to be moved away from, but that's the way it is right now, right? So AWP is what we send to them. Okay, well, say, say we send a $500 AWP, they pay the pharmacy $5, (laughs) <laughs> but then they turn around and build a plan 400 and say, look, we saved you $100 from what the pharmacy billed us, right? <laughs> so it's it's a game that they play and they pocket the difference. I had a patient you know, three weeks ago that came in and said he got a letter from his health plan saying that this prescription was filled after, he, after the plan should have been deactivated. And therefore, he owes them $167. <laughs> this was for his generic resubastatin that they paid me $4.67 for. <laughs> So there's the spread right there. I mean, that's just one little example, right? And he called and said, why am I, why do I have to pay this? First of all, you should have deactivated the plan. Yeah. And second of all, you, you only paid my pharmacy $4.67. Yeah. And kudos to them. The, the health plan turned around and pointed at their own PBM <laughs> and, said, and said, well, this is what the PBM charged us. Man, that, that's, a, that's a heck of a story right there. 
It's it's nuts. Every day, every day you see that kind of crap. Yeah, I, sorry, <laughs> am I allowed to say crap on here? Oh yeah, trust me, I've said worse. <laughs> okay. But right. yeah, no, I always the analogy I always use was it's like playing darts, but the, only one of the two people playing can actually see the board. The other one's blindfolded. Right. And yeah. so, you know, they throw a dart and one person goes, oh, that was a bullseye. That's great. When, you know, at the end, they're the ones who end up winning because they could see the dartboard. Like, oh, well, you only hit a 20 that time. They could have missed the board. They could have hit a bullseye. Who knows, right? Because right. the PBM is the one who has full control of it and it doesn't right. share the transparency. And they can move that bullseye at any time. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Anywhere they want. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And then the plans have just no clue until all of a sudden they start breaking it down more. And a lot of times the PBM's pretty hesitant to open their black box, if you will. Right. Do you feel federal and or state legislators do enough to help maintain a fair business environment with pharmacists can open independent pharmacies if they choose to do so like the one you and your wife did? So when we opened six years ago, it wasn't so terrible from a requiring licenses. We were able to get through the licensing procedures and, and contracting procedures fairly seamlessly, but from what I hear recently, it's gotten worse, especially with the contracting with the bigger PBMs who have uh, pharmacies that are located in the same region or whatever. You know, they're, they're making it difficult to open new pharmacies. But that aside, from an overall business perspective, you know, and, and regulation at the federal and state level, I think that there's so much that at the federal and the state level that they're trying to do. And I was just on a conference call the other day that was hosted by Buddy Carter and, and some other folks that are in the House of Representatives that are trying to push some bills forward. And a point that was made on the, that, that conference call was stop trying to make these big bills that are going to fix everything, right? right? Just focus in and fix DIR or just focus in and fix, you know, the rebate game or the spread pricing game, right? But what's happening is that the states are having to take on the burden of passing bills and then the PBMs are going and claiming ERISA and saying, oh, well... <laughs> It's a it's a health plan, so it's exempt, and we don't have to follow that rule, that follow that law, right? So they're getting around the state laws by by claiming ERISA preemption. Long way of saying yes. I think that the feds and the state are trying to help, and I think that everyone's finally starting to understand what the problem is. But I think that it's they got to find a way to actually get to the root of the problem without letting the PBM claim ERISA. That challenge could go up at the Supreme Court's hearing some of the states regulating PBM practices here. Right. I think it's going to them in April or May. Uh, so that should be, yep. that could be a landmark make or break deal for pharmacy and healthcare just in general in this country. So I oh think yeah, that's... it'll be, it'll be huge. Yeah. I mean, we get, I'm, I'm really waiting on that with bated breath for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Don't hold your breath cause it's still a few months away, but man, <laughs> it, 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 uh, at the same time, it's, it's going to be a nail biter for all of us and, I think it could be an absolute game changer, but that's a that's a podcast for another day right now. Yes, yeah. Do you think that independent pharmacies are, are I've, you might be biased, but do you think they're vital to the constantly changing healthcare scene? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, so yes, you're right. I'm a little biased, but you know, the, the thing with independent pharmacies is, is not they're not just pharmacies. They're not a store. It's a healthcare practice. You know, you're. You're walking in as the most accessible healthcare practitioner that you deal with on a daily basis as your pharmacist, right? You should be able to have a conversation with them. You should have the time for them to walk around the counter and consult you on that new medication that you're starting. So more and more, you know, when you see chains or the mail order pharmacies, there's no personal relationship because the corporate entity is pushing them so hard for metrics and, and filling prescriptions and it, there's no time for that relationship. So yeah, I mean, 
independent pharmacy is vital to fixing the healthcare problem that this country has and is is vital to people's healthcare. You know, one thing you mentioned there that reminded me, there was a pharmacy where I went to school in Toledo. God, I can't remember the name of it, but it had been around forever. A fraternity brother of mine, he's much older, owned it. They stopped selling cigarettes, I believe, in the early 80s. <laughs> yes. I believe it was, yeah. I could be wrong on the date. It might have been, it was somewhere in the 80s, I believe, because it was bad for people's health. And he said, you know what, this is a healthcare place. We, I can't justify making a profit off of selling you something that's going to cause you cancer or to make you come back or cause you emphysema or whatever, COPD to come back. And then CVS goes and does it, what, here, a couple of years ago, makes a big landmark thing about it. And everyone applauds them. And I'm going, yeah, you know, I I applaud their efforts too. But at the same time as this should have happened 20, 30 years ago, and it was with a lot of independence. Right. Yeah. When we opened the doors six years ago, they were still selling cigarettes in their pharmacies. And my wife was like, this is insane. Like, I don't know how you could help people with smoking cessation or, you know, fixing their COPD or whatever. And you're trying to sell them cigarettes at the same time, you know? So it's, it's, yeah, it's funny. I I could for a little while see a little bit of some of the vaping where people were getting off cigarettes, but now with that whole thing kind of blown up too, that's another discussion as well. So, so do you think that the smaller independent pharmacies or smaller chain pharmacies, like the regional ones, if you will, help push the profession forward by some of the things they're doing? Like you had mentioned with your role in farm works? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I guess I'm in the zone on the whole PBM thing. So, (laughs) but but yeah, so, you know, I think that as with any smaller company, right, that's where innovation happens. That's where things change because with the bigger companies, and I used to work for one, I worked for Cisco, you know, as CISCO, not SYSCO. (laughs) And the big corporate entity it's hard to change the way that they did their expansions or the way that they innovated was by acquiring smaller more nimble companies so i think when you look at the smaller pharmacies they're not just the mom and pop you know local ho donkey pharmacy that you used to be on the corner shop they're the ones that are innovating they're the ones trying to push clinical services forward they're the ones trying to be there for their patients i mean my wife and i when she opened, right, she came from Grady. She wanted to run an ambulatory care setting in the community. So the first thing for her was to approach our local regional health system, Emory Johns Creek in this case, and start a transition of care program. So she started, successfully got one of the chains that was in there doing a meds to bed program, got kicked out. We got put in purely on her clinical expertise to say, we can save you from getting, you know, from your patients having 30 day readmissions, right? And we got that contract. We started doing the transition of care program with Emory Johns Creek. We don't charge the hospital anything. And we've shown that you can sustain the business by doing that. It's a great referral source for us. Well, then we started getting all these requests from other pharmacies to be able to do this similar kind of program. So that's what that's what formed FarmWorks, which is the other company that I manage with my wife. And that we, we offer that transition of care services, a bundled up module out of FarmWorks just to help other independent pharmacies move their transition of care services with their local health system further. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, transitions of care is huge. And man, it, it can make a world of difference for somebody. Like as, as you even mentioned with you guys with going with your daughter from just having a bad right. experience with one pharmacy out. And that's a very simple transition of care as opposed to somebody who's had, right. who's had a heart attack or something a little more extreme. Oh, yeah. Like that. I mean, and, and we have, you listen, it's a good, Embry is a great hospital. You know, they, they have great physicians, great, great technicians, great input folks. But even I, I'm a computer engineer. I can look at some of these charts and say, holy cow, what happened here? 
you know, yeah. so it, we have EMR access into their, uh, health, into their EMR system that gives us the ability to not only look at what prescriptions were actually sent over, but look at the chart. Does it make sense? Did they miss something? Is there, you know, is there a conflict with stuff they were on at home? If the prescriptions are just sent to a busy chain or mail order pharmacy, none of that is happening. So, you know, it, it's that extra level of eyes on the profile, on the person that helps to keep them out of the hospital. Yeah, personal touch goes a long way, especially in healthcare. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, hey, so with that, is there anything else you want to talk about with kind of like the, the PBM independent pharmacy realm before I dive in the last two questions I ask everybody on here? Um, I don't think so. I mean, we've there are some of these topics I know that we could probably spend a three hour conversation on alone yeah. <laughs> with examples. But my, you know, my biggest thing is that all of these things that the PBMs do have a direct impact to patient care. It's not about the reimbursements. It's not about the, you know, stealing patients and steering them to their other pharmacies. It's about this is impacting this patient for the negative. I have, I have yet to see a positive impact. That's what I think everybody needs to focus on is, you know, how is this impacting patient care? You know, and that's one thing that I've had some people reach out to me about, hey, I want to go help advocate, push our profession forward. You know, what should I do? What, who, what should I talk about? What should I focus on? And that's the one thing I always say is, you know, when we're talking with legislators, they don't know all these acronyms. They might not know what a PBM was until the past year or so, if they right. still know what it is. When you approach them, start with the patient care first. How does this affect yeah. patients and health care? How and maybe save them dollars on Medicare, Medicaid, depending on if you're state or federal level. Start with that first and then step back with, hey, here's how we can fix this. You know, and here's right. how this impacts my business so that I can better do this and leverage assets to take care of them. So, yeah, I think that's a you hit the hit it out of the park on that one. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, my wife and I are are good capitalists. Right. I mean, we we opened our business. We wanted to compete fairly and move move our business forward. We have to make money in order to stay in business to provide the level of service that we do. But ultimately, you have to treat the patient the right way and make sure that the patient gets the best outcomes in order for you to stay in business. And I think it should be across the board the same way. Yeah. And a key word you said there, you probably don't realize is patient, not customer when it comes to these things. Right. They're a patient yeah. first. The money's oh, secondary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So if two questions I ask everyone, if there's one thing you could change about pharmacy, could be anything, what would it be? Can I give you two things? <laughs> sure. We, we'll do that. Okay. Um, a, a, play, a fair playing field, right? I, I don't think it's too much to ask to have a fair playing field for all pharmacy practice, right? If you're an independent pharmacy, a chain, a mail order, I, I just want consumers to have a choice and I want them to be treated the way they should be treated when they go to the pharmacy. Um, I think that's number fair. Two, I, number two, I would say that all of us, chain pharmacies, chain pharmacists, independent pharmacists need to stop calling our pharmacies stores. They're healthcare practices and they should be treated as such. They're not convenience stores. We stop calling it stores. You start to change the perception of your practice. I really like that. That kind of falls on line with why I always call them patients and not customers. But I, I Correct, really, yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, last one here. If there's one law you could change in pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why? So I don't know if it would necessarily be a law or just a, a practice, and that's to stop allowing and to start re-examining all these vertical integrations and vertical mergers. When, when you have the insurer that owns the PBM, that owns the pharmacy, that owns the doctor, and they're all <laughs> under one corporate roof, right? 
that's just ripe for abuse, you know, higher prices and more of a, a shareholder view on healthcare as opposed to a, a personal or, or patient view on healthcare. So n- not a law, but a, a practice at both the federal and the state level, which would be to stop allowing and to look back at some of these vertical mergers that have occurred over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, it might even be might even be longer than 10 or 15 years at this point. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that one as well. I think the uh, the caveat there is that makes it really easy is you got to look at who the number one spenders are. It's the federal government in every right. one of those. Yep. So that yep. should be a fair game for them to look at that. Hey, that right. it, it's been awesome talking with you. We could probably go, you said, a lot longer on some of these topics, but we'll cut it there. I think this was a great way for people to get some of the dive into what happens with independence and why why it can be a little tough, but also how, like how they can learn how about independence practice. So thanks for coming on here today, Michael. I appreciate it. And yeah. listeners, hey, if you like this episode or have any questions for me or Mike, uh, you can hit us up, uh, politicalpharmacist at gmail.com, or you can leave comments and reviews on whatever podcast platform you listen to this on. Thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Mm-hmm.